Did you guys hear that? No complaining for a whole week? This might be the hardest one yet. Okay, it's out of the way. <laughs> hey, over the last number of weeks, we have been going through our Game Changer series in the book of Luke. And this has been a series where we have seen where Jesus has been the ultimate game changer in history. But not just in history. The truth is that Jesus is actually a game changer for all of history, and he's a game changer for us today. Today we're going to look at a passage called the Transfiguration, or known as the Transfiguration, in Luke verses 9, uh, 28 through 36. So if you want, you could turn in your Bibles right now to that. But what is this Transfiguration? Well, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But if you've ever had doubts about who Jesus is, then this passage today is for you. Or if you've ever doubted that God can use you, then the passage today is for you. Or if you've ever questioned if there's more going on in our world or, or, or what's the meaning of all this, this passage is for you. Our passage today shows us that there is actually a lot more going on behind the scenes than we see on a regular basis. There is this spiritual reality that happens and works in concert with the physical world. And what happens in the physical world is very much affected by what happens in the spiritual world. We just don't get to see it all the time. The Bible tells us that there are two forces at work behind the scenes. There's the forces of God, which we would call heaven, and we would talk about angels, and we would say light and goodness. And then there's the forces of evil or Satan, and we would say demons and hell and darkness. Satan's goal is to keep you focused on the physical world. If he can keep you focused on the physical world, then he can keep you from seeing that God might have something greater and more amazing for you. God, on the other hand, is trying to get you to understand that there is life beyond this world. There is eternity to consider in how you live your daily life and how we live our lives out on this planet. The things that we do today matter for eternity, and this, Satan does not want you to know that. Every now and again, the veil between the physical world and the spiritual world is pulled back. And we get to see these two realities interact. And it reminds us that there's more going on here than meets the eye. Have you ever seen the movie Transformers? Uh, it was a, a cartoon long ago when I was a kid. It was a comic book series. It's also a new movie series, which you've probably seen some of them. Of. And what it is, is it's these aliens who come, they're alien robots that come from another planet and they take up residence here on Earth. And they disguise themselves as cars. And they drive around. You would never know that the cars were among you until you're driving down the freeway and an epic battle between good and evil erupts in the middle of the freeway and these cars transform into these giant robots and start fighting each other right in the middle of the, um, the freeway. The phrase, there's more than meets the eye, basically means that there are more facts present right now than it appears. Such is the case with our world. It's not that often that we get to see the spiritual world plainly and see what's going on, or pardon me, yeah, to see the spiritual world plainly, but, uh, but there are things that are happening behind the scenes. These spiritual realities are affecting what's going on in life. You know, just read through the book of Revelation or watch a documentary on one of history's greatest villains or even just look at our world today. There is a lot more going on behind the scenes. There are things that are affecting our realities 
We just don't get to see them very plainly or very often. However, there are occasions for specific reasons where God allows what's happening behind the scenes to be seen by us. He allows us to have this brief encounter in a more noticeable way with the spiritual realm. On the night that Jesus was born, long before Santa Claus was a thing and December 25th was just any other workday, God peeled back the veil between the spiritual world and the physical world in a major way as he sent thousands upon thousands of angels into the nighttime sky singing and proclaiming glory to God in the highest to a group of shepherds because that night Jesus was born. And this moment, this experience that God allowed them to have with the spiritual world spurred them on to action and they went and they found Jesus in Bethlehem and they worshiped at his feet. Then they told Mary and Joseph all about what they had seen and Mary treasures these things up in her heart. They were amazing to her, these, this experience that they had had, but it doesn't stop there. These shepherds leave Mary and Joseph and Jesus and they take off into the town and they tell the entire town about what God was doing in their midst. What appeared to be a quiet night on earth, just a normal night where these shepherds were quietly sitting in their field, was actually the biggest party in heaven. And as God peels back this, this veil between the physical and the spiritual world, we see this amazing party happening as God sends these angels in there. As they proclaim that Jesus has been born. These shepherds went from sitting in a quiet field to worshiping and preaching in the same night. How does that happen? It's because God gave them a picture of eternity, a glimpse of the heavenly realm, and that experience, that little bit that he gave them was enough to spur them on to action. Well, our passage today is very similar to this. It's a group of normal guys who encounter this incredible spiritual reality and it spurs them to action. We see the spiritual world breaking through into the physical world as Jesus reveals his glorified self to a group of his disciples. This would be a game changer moment for these disciples because it would allow them to see Jesus, not how they had known him, how, he's, how he'd walked around every day with them, but it would allow them to see him in his glorified state in how he's existed for all of eternity. He wasn't just another great religious leader. And he wasn't just another popular trendsetter. Jesus wasn't just the next coolest thing on the block, the newest Instagram star, you know, the next YouTube sensation. He wasn't him. No, he is the son of God. And they got to see him that night in all of his glory. My son and daughter, eldest son and daughter, they like to make Instagram videos. And they make these silly little videos and they show them to their mom and I. And we look at these things and we're like, who would ever want to watch these? You know, <laughs> But they put these things, you know what I'm talking about if you're a parent. They put these things together and they post them online. And they, surprisingly enough, will get a few hundred views on these things. And I'm thinking, there's a lot of crazy people out there if you'll watch that video. <laughs> But anyway, people watch these things as they put them on. And so my son and daughter, they created this one YouTube or uh, Instagram video. It was 12 seconds long. And at the beginning of the video, they start to do this little <clears throat> dance. And uh, as, as they're dancing, they're acting like they can't dance. But then they break into unison and they do a dance move uh, synchronized together for the rest of the song. Again, it's 12 seconds long. It's really fast. And it's actually somewhat impressive. I was like, hey, that's actually not bad. I don't know where you got those moves. It wasn't from your dad. I can tell you that. I'm a good Baptist boy. I don't know how to dance. <laughs> 
But anyway, so they make this, this, this silly little video, 12 seconds long, and it gains a few hundred views. And they're like, dad, look, we got a few hundred views on this. And I'm like, that's, that's great. But this thing gets a few more views than that. And pretty soon it's got like almost a thousand views. And my son's like, dad, like we might get a thousand people to watch this. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, there is a lot more crazy people than I thought out there. But anyway, so it, it, it keeps going and it passes a thousand. And I'm noticing that every several days, this thing is doubling and it hits 2,000 and 4,000. And my son's like, dad, like we might get 10,000 views. And I'm like, yeah, son, like maybe, like it might fizzle out, don't worry. But anyway, as it approaches 10,000, he shows it. He's like, dad, look, 30 more people just viewed it in this time that we're talking. Like, this is amazing. And I'm noticing that it's doubling every couple of days. And as it doubles, it's 10,000. And then it goes to 20,000. And I said to my son, I said, you know, son, by Friday, if this keeps going like this, you might actually get 100,000 views on this silly little video. And he's like, yeah, I know. Well, Friday rolls around and there's 170,000 people that have viewed this video. And we're like blown away. It hasn't stopped. In fact, I've noticed that this silly little video is not gaining double every couple of days. It's now doubling every day. Well, by Sunday, he had 2.3 million people view this silly video. And by the time the dust settled, 12.8 million people had viewed this silly little video. Can you believe that? So I've decided to incorporate the dance this morning. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> My kids' fame came and went within just a few weeks of time. You know, we couldn't even monetize what they were doing before it was over with. But this is what we do. We follow these flashes in the pan. These, these leaders who are here today and they're gone tomorrow. Will Smith this past week made himself 10 times more famous than he ever has in all of his career by slapping Chris Rock in the face. And he's gained followers and he's lost followers in that. But the point is he's really popular right now, probably in a bad way, but it's only for a short period of time. Pretty soon, nobody's gonna worry. Nobody's gonna think about it again. At some point, his fame is going to fade away. But this is not what Jesus is like. He's not just the next captivating guy on the block. He's not going to be here today and gone tomorrow. He was here before and he is going to be here after. He is the one that stepped into our reality from eternity as the son of God. He is the one that every trendsetter, every great leader that's walked the face of this earth... Well, and every person, as a matter of fact, who's walked the face of this earth, it's going to be subject to one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess, some with great joy because they have acknowledged him as their savior and others with bitter distress that they rejected him, that he is the Lord. Right now, this reality is hidden by the physical world. And the true reality of who Jesus is, is actually muted by all the stuff that we see and the things going on in our life. And Satan is there and he's trying to deceive us and keep us from noticing who Jesus really is. But when you pull away the veil and you silence the deceiver, there's nothing left to hide the fact that Jesus is the son of God. His glory one day will be so obvious and so apparent to everyone that it won't matter. There'll be no denying, no, denote, no doubting it. His glory is going to leave nothing open to interpretation. And there's going to be nothing that will interrupt us seeing him in his glorified state. Nobody will deny it. And this is what the disciples in this passage were invited into in Luke 28. A glimpse of Jesus, not as they had known him, but as he is known in eternity.
before we approach the text today, I think it's important that you understand something about it. This wasn't just a random event that these disciples got to see. You know, they didn't just happen to be with Jesus when he entered into this glorified state. No, God designed this spiritual encounter for a purpose. Jesus was nearing the end of his ministry here on on earth when this event took place. He had spent three years building and teaching and training these uh, disciples um, for this moment because the shocker to these disciples was going to be it wasn't Jesus who was going to carry out his ministry on earth. It was going to be his followers. It was going to be the disciples who started it. And then it was going to be me and you. It was going to be everybody else who came after him. He was going to remain behind the scenes and they were going to have to carry out the mission that he had for their lives here on earth until he returned. The disciples needed this encounter with Jesus as an anchoring point for their faith and to spur them to action because God's plan of spreading salvation was about to fall into their hands. The transfiguration event in Luke happens at this perfect moment right after Jesus has two very important conversations with his disciples. The first conversation we heard about a couple of weeks ago. It was Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And this is an important understanding that the disciples are becoming aware of, that Jesus is more than just the next trendsetter. He's not going to go away. He's the only figure that truly matters. There is no one greater that came before him, and there certainly will be no one greater that comes after him. And the second discussion that Jesus has with his disciples is that he is going to suffer and he is going to die. And on the third day, he's going to be raised from the grave. And after that time, the task of being a disciple, the job of being a follower of Christ is going to become a lot harder. There is going to be a heavy cost for following him. A true disciple of Jesus is going to need to lay down their life and pick up their cross and follow him. And that means that they're going to have to lay down the life they thought they were going to live and submit it to Jesus and start living the life that he is calling them to. And we know that if a seed falls from a tree, it needs to die. It needs to go into the ground and be buried before it can be raised to life and create a beautiful, huge new tree or whatever it's from. This is what is going on here. The old life needs to get buried so that the new life that's submitted to Jesus can raise up, God can raise that up to something new and produce an abundance of everlasting fruit. So it's important that these two discussions come before the transfiguration account because they confirm to Peter what Jesus, or what, they confirm to Peter what he was believing about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. And it reveals that there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye which will be an important perspective for them to have because the spreading of the good news is not an easy road for them to follow. Let's pick up our passage today in verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this. Now the this that they're referring to in this passage is the discussions that Jesus was having with his disciples. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. The transfiguration account is is a parallel account that happens in all three of the synoptic gospels. 
And synoptic just means that these, the general synopsis or the content in these three books overlapped and we can see it, uh, we can take them together. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all share this story of the transfiguration with the readers. And I love that we have this because when they paint, when we see the three different accounts, we can pick up different details in there and it paints a broader picture for us of what this event was like. One of the details that Luke doesn't share with us, but Matthew and Mark do, is that this was a particularly high mountain that Jesus takes his disciples on. Now that detail gives us a few, few, few clues about where this mountain could have been. We know that six to eight days earlier, Jesus was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And so we can notice, you know, that within six to eight days walking journey of there, what mountains would have been high mountains? Traditionally, the mountain that they think that, that Jesus went up on with them was Mount Tabor. And Mount Tabor is about 2,000 feet in elevation. But some have argued that it could have been Mount Hermon, which is about 9,000 feet in elevation. Either way, both of these mountains provide a tremendous view of the plains around them, and they would have been able to see quite a ways as they went up there. Here's a picture that I took about two weeks ago at the top of a mountain in Sunshine Village. And I love going skiing because when you go to the top of the mountain like this and you look over the vast creation that God has made, it's, it's hard to not think about who created this and how God created it. I've gone up there over the past 20 or 30 years many times and every single time I get to the top of the chairlift and I look over that huge valley, I think the same thing. Man, how did God make this? How marvelous would, must God be to create something so vast and so beautiful? And the picture doesn't do it justice. And you know this because you've been to a top of a mountain before, likely. It is amazing up there. I don't know how people who don't believe in God get to the top of that chairlift and look around and don't think about the creator. Because that's all I can think about when I get to the top of the, a mountain like that. This is the setting that Jesus takes his disciples to for prayer. There is a perspective at the top of a mountain that kind of blurs the lines between the physical and the spiritual world. It's just a little bit easier to believe in God when you're standing on the top of a mountain. Astronaut John Glenn, who was the first American to orbit the earth, who's seen more of God's creation than me, you and I have, said this. He said to look out over uh, at that kind, a uh, part of me to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God is to me impossible. And I would concur. How can you look out at the vastness and the beauty of some of the things that God's created? Scale back and take that into space and look at the marvelous thing that He's created and all the planets that are around it and not believe in God. If Jesus is going to get his disciples to see that there's more going on here than meets the eye, then the top of the mountain is probably the perfect place to start. Once they reach the top of the mountain, in verse 29, we read that Jesus prays. And it says in verse 29, as he was praying. Now, notice that it says, as he was praying. I don't know what it is with the disciples, but every time Jesus prays in the Bible, these guys scurry off and they take a nap. This is no different. I have no idea why. I mean, they are standing on the top of a mountain. They see this glorious scenery. They're starting to become aware that they're actually walking around with God. And they get to the top of a mountain. And they think, eh, I'll, have a, I'll have a quick nap while Jesus prays. I don't get it, but this is what they do. They go and they have a nap. And so as he was praying, 
This amazing thing happens. The appearance of his face changed. He becomes transfigured and his clothes become bright as a flash of lightning. The veil between the physical and the spiritual world was lifted and the glorified state of Jesus is revealed. This is a preview for these disciples of what Jesus is going to be like in eternity. Now, it's very interesting to watch the different people convey what Jesus looked like here. They're limited by language. They're talking about spiritual stuff, and they're limited by language and how they explain it. Matthew says his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as the light, which is just another way of saying, I've never seen anything become as white as this. Mark says his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Many years later, John, who was present and saw Jesus in his glorified state there, would see Jesus again in his glorified state in a vision that he had. And he recalls this in Revelation 1 verses 14 and 15. And it says, the hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. What an incredible word picture these people are trying to convey to us. And again, they're just telling us what Jesus looked like. They're not explaining to us what it was like to be in that moment. It's like me describing to you what a hamburger's like. It has a, a bun and tomatoes and, and pickles and sauce and meat. It's like, great, that's a hamburger. But when you taste a hamburger, it's a much different experience. That's what these people are doing here. They're just telling us what Jesus was like. But one day, we're going to get to experience the glory of Jesus, at least those of us who confess our faith in him. So it's in this moment on the top of the mountain in verse 30, two men, Moses and Elijah, appear in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. And they begin talking about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, this is an interesting way to talk. Notice the language that he uses here. He uses the words departure and fulfillment. The word departure that Luke uses in the Greek is the word exodus, which is a bit strange because we know that he's talking about Jesus's death. So why would you, Luke, use a word that means to exit or to close off one's career, leaving this place for a better one? Well, you know, as well as I know, that Jesus wasn't going to die in the permanent sense like some people think about it. He was going to depart from the physical world in order to take his seat in the spiritual world next to the Father in heaven. And Luke knows this as he's writing this. Luke also uses the word fulfillment. Uh, Jesus was going to bring his departure to fulfillment. The word fulfillment in Greek is pleroo, to make complete, to carry through. Jesus was going to bring his plan to bear upon himself. Nobody takes Jesus' life from him. He willingly lays it down. This discussion that Jesus is having with Moses and Elijah is the fulfillment of the mission that Moses and Elijah had prophesied about hundreds of years earlier. And it's at this point that the sleepy-eyed disciples start to think that maybe nappy time should end and they should start to wake up. And we read in verse 32, Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. This is one of those pinch me, I think I'm dreaming moments. But they weren't dreaming. This was actually happening in front of their eyes. They were actually experiencing the glory of Jesus in front of them. 
Now listen, uh, it was important for them to witness this discussion. Jesus just a week earlier had declared that he was gonna suffer many things and be killed and then raised to life. But at that time, they didn't understand what he was talking about. And so as they wake up and they see and hear Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about these things, these two very prominent historical figures in the Jewish religion, it serves as a, a reminder or a confirmation of everything that Jesus had told them. And yet, it's still, they still weren't getting it. The disciples still weren't quite figuring out that the, what they thought Jesus was going to do and what his life was going to look like wasn't exactly how Jesus was going to play that out. We continue reading in verse 33. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And in brackets, he did not know what he was saying. Have you ever had a moment with God that you felt was so real and so tangible that you didn't want to leave it? Like you could feel God's presence around you? I remember when I was in grade 10 or 11, I went on a a trip with our youth group to a youth conference in Regina at CBC. It was called Canadian Bible College. And it was a weekend-long conference, and kids would come from all over Canada, and we would meet up there, and we would have events and rallies. And I remember at the end of one of these rallies, there had been a, a great speaker that evening, and we had just sung our hearts out to the Lord, and it was just a really impactful worship time. And as the rally ended, and the lights came back up on the house, I had this perfect moment with the Lord. I wasn't hungry. I wasn't thirsty, I wasn't tired, I wasn't hot, I wasn't cold. I was in complete contentment. And, and, and I'm gonna use words to describe something that's happened spiritually, but, but I have to use language to convey it, but you know what I'm talking about. It was like the spirit of God was heavy, was thick in the room, and I could tell that I was in his presence. And I didn't wanna leave that moment. I was perfectly happy to just sit in that chair forever and experience God. Have you ever had a moment like that with God? Have you ever had a moment in your life that you knew that you had just encountered God in a more significant way than you do on your kind of everyday normal routine? I think this is where Peter might have been coming from. He had just woken up from a nap to see Jesus in his glorified state and, and Moses and Elijah are there and he doesn't want to leave the moment. Some commentaries say that he wanted to set up these, these tents because he wanted to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacle or the Feast of Booths with Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And this was a, a festival that they had once a year to commemorate their time as the Israelites left Egypt and had spent a time in the desert wandering with temporary structures. And so they would set up these temporary booths now to commemorate that event and spend some time in them as they celebrated it. Luke doesn't give us the motive for why Peter says this, but what we do know for sure is that Peter did not want to leave that moment. And I don't blame him. Unfortunately, what Peter was not, uh, uh, pardon me, but Peter was not wanting to leave that moment was actually further evidence that he actually wasn't getting the big picture. The fact that he didn't want to leave that moment means that he didn't perceive deep enough the conversation he had just witnessed between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. You see, Jesus needed to go back down that mountain. Humanity was counting on him fulfilling his mission, and Peter wasn't understanding this. The fulfillment of Jesus' purpose awaited for him, and Peter interjects because he's thinking only about the physical world. He's thinking only about that moment, and he says, let's stay. But his reality of what he wanted was at odds with what God wanted in that, in that moment. 
And it's in that moment when Peter is speaking that we reach sort of the pinnacle of this whole event. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. I'm not sure how you feel when God audibly speaks and you see him audibly speak in scripture, but when I see God audibly speak in scripture, it kind of makes me sit up in my chair a little bit straighter and pay a little closer attention. There's this sense that if God is going to audibly speak, it's probably something important and I should probably pay attention to that. We know from scripture that the voice of the Lord is terrifying. This whole scene that's unfolding on the mountain with God descending in a cloud is reminiscent of back in the Israelite time of the Exodus when God descended on Mount Sinai in a cloud and was speaking. And the Israelites say to Moses at that time as God is speaking from the mountain, they say, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or or we will die. God proclaiming his law to them and uttering it with his own mouth was more than they could bear. And they said, Moses, just talk for us. There's some evidence in the text of our scripture today and as we take the synoptic gospels into account that when God started speaking, these guys just hit the dirt. Faces to the ground. And in this short verbal engagement, the father says three very important things. He said, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When he says, this is my son, the father is acknowledging that Peter's confession that he had made a week earlier is true and accurate. You guys got it right. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's also indicating that out of the three men that are present there, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus... Jesus is the greater one. Moses and Elijah might have been great in the eyes of the world, but now Jesus is here and he is far greater than any of them. He is the son of God. His next statement is whom I have chosen. And this statement sums up the person of Jesus and the work that he's doing and it is sanctioned by the father. God has chosen this moment. He has orchestrated this whole marvelous plan. The one that was set in motion, the beginning, the day the world was created. And we know now that God is behind all of it. And the third and final statement is this, listen to him. And I love this because when God says, listen to him, I know, and we know that it's not just for the disciples. When he says, listen to him, it's for us too. And so if God is audibly going to tell us that we should be listening to Jesus, then it makes me want to study his word and and just comb over it and hang on everything that he says. The words that Jesus speaks for us are game changers because Jesus's words are not set in the physical world. Jesus's words have been set in the eternal world and they are confirmed by the Father. This is what Jesus means when he says in Luke 21, verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God is telling us to listen to him because the very words that he speaks are eternal and unending. Everything that we have on this planet is finite. That's why we have such a hard time grasping eternity. How did God live forever? I don't get it. That's because we have nothing to compare it to. But if you want to get a glimpse of eternity... Just read the words of Jesus. The words that he speaks are true and they exist for all eternity. The truth that we can gather as we look at Jesus's words are truth that existed before the world began and they're truth that's gonna exist long after this world is gone. They are eternal. 
So you wanna get a picture of eternity, look at Jesus' words. That truth never ends. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples, this is proof that they were buried their faces in the ground. The disciples kept this to themselves and didn't tell anyone at the time what they had seen. After God finishes speaking, the moment's over. This encounter had finished. And the last statement that we're left with by the Father is listen to him and it reveals what the motive is for this entire event. This whole event has been carefully orchestrated for the disciples to strengthen their resolve and to plant a seed in their heart that would spur them to action after Jesus died and was rose again. This seed would bear fruit that would be incredible fruit for all of history. Following the resurrection, these men would be foundational in spreading the message of Jesus Christ into this world. And they needed this event. They needed this seed to confirm what they were going and what they had becoming or were understanding about the man that they were beginning to follow. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He was the son of God. And Jesus' death would take and it would mature that seed of faith and understanding. And it would ignite in them a passion that would drive these men to do great things for Jesus, even though they face significant suffering. Two of these men would die for their faith and a third one would be exiled to an island because of his faith in Jesus. Here's the one point that I wanna, want you to remember from today's message. God designs these spiritual encounters and events in our lives for a purpose, to grow our faith and spur us to action. Now, I doubt that many of us have had encounters with God as dramatic as this one and these ones that we've talked about today, but we know that God is still working behind the scenes to blur uh, the, the lines between the physical and the spiritual world, and he does that for us sometimes. He does that to show us a bigger picture of what's going on in the world. For me, this could happen, um, you know, when I'm standing on the top of a mountain and I'm experiencing the grandness of his creation. It could happen as I'm standing in a worship service and I'm singing uh, words to him, glorifying him. And it can happen as I'm studying my Bible and I'm reading the words on the page. I've had times in my life where I've been reading my Bible and the words in the Bible have literally been like water to my soul. And again, I'm talking about a spiritual thing. That's not a physical thing. The words don't jump off my, the page, but God does something with the words on the page that allow them to nourish my heart to the point where it feels like a glass of water. Maybe some of you have had that experience. I've also had moments where I've been walking and praying and I was in a field and I came to this point in this field where I was praying where I could unmistakably feel the Lord's presence around me. I knew in that moment that God was with me. Again, I'm using words to describe something that happens spiritually because I have nothing else to offer you. But in that moment, I knew something was different. What encounters with God have you had? Moments that you can look back on and know for certain that something special was happening in that moment. God was doing something in your midst. God was doing something in your heart at that moment. One of the things that this passage of scripture can teach us is that God designs these encounters for a purpose. He blurs the lines between the physical and the spiritual world because he wants to do something in you. He's planting a seed in you that's meant to mature because he has a greater mission for your life than what we notice on a regular daily basis. Some of you who are sitting here today know that God has given you these moments 
where he's intentionally built faith moments into your life and planted seeds, but it hasn't made much of a difference in your life. The seed that he has planted in your heart hasn't spurred you to action or at least anything that would be considered a discernible value. It was a great moment, but it's in, it's in the past now. Why? If you have seeds of faith in your heart that need maturing, remember that there is a spiritual force out there that's working hard to get you to focus on the physical so that you miss that God's got a bigger, more eternal plan. There is eternity to consider. Satan wants you to focus on that irritating person in your life so that you will be annoyed all the time and forget that there is an eternity that he wants you to consider when you live your daily life. He wants you to focus on your career because your career really needs you right now. And if you focus on that, then you'll miss the fact that God's got a bigger plan for you. He wants you to focus on the failings of others because as long as you keep condemning them and saying mean things about them, then it'll keep you from looking in the mirror and realizing that maybe you haven't done any better with your life than they have. Whatever it is, we are all just a bunch of broken people and Satan takes that and he exploits that at every turn. He takes our humanness and he just takes advantage of that. This is what Lent is all about. Beating back the weaknesses in our flesh so that we can gain a greater perspective on the mission that Jesus has for our lives. Folks, there, are, there is more going on here than meets the eye. There is an eternal side to life that we need to consider as we live out our daily lives. What do you need to start doing to allow those seeds that God has planted to grow? Do you need to get off the couch and start serving someplace? Do you need to get on your knees and start praying for your neighbor or your friends or your family? Remember, you are God's chosen people. You are the ones who are going to carry his mission out to the world. So maybe it's time to get on your knees and start praying for some people that don't know him. Eternity is at stake. Remember, lift your gaze. Or maybe conversely, you know, maybe there's things that we need to stop doing. Maybe there's things that are captivating our attention, behaviors that are sucking us in, that are keeping us from carrying out the mission that God has for us. Maybe you're so hung up on Instagram or YouTube or filling your life with pleasure that, you're, that you can't see past the physical stuff that's happening right now to understand that God is trying to get you to consider and eternity is in view as you live out your life. God has a much bigger plan in mind for you than what Satan wants you to know. But God has also given you these moments to strengthen you and strengthen your faith. He's given you them to blur the lines between the, the physical and the spiritual to remind you that you need to consider eternity as you live out your life every day. If you believe in Jesus, then come alive. I'm speaking to the seeds that God has sown in your heart over the years in these moments where he's growing your faith. Come alive and bear fruit. It's time to see some big apple trees in here. This isn't a nursery that I'm looking over. This is an orchard. Just like at the transfiguration, God has given you these encounters with him to spur you to action. So come alive and bear fruit. Let the seeds that he has planted in you mature. This is why we meet together, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. To call each other to, to live out more than we see on a daily basis. And to remind each other to consider eternity as we live out our lives every day. Let's pray.
Father God, as we have seen today, there is more going on here that you want us to be aware of. And God, we would just pray that you would bind the hands of the enemy as he constantly is trying to steal away the moments that you have shared with us that have opened our eyes and revealed that you are real, that there is eternity to consider in how we live our lives. And so God, we just pray by the power of your spirit that you would bind the hands of the enemy in this. And that Lord, as a church, we would be an orchard. That God, there would be lots of fruit that's growing here because we have engaged with the eternal world, the spiritual world that you are calling us to. God, you have a greater mission for our hearts and our lives. And I pray that all of us here, all of us would get a sense of that calling and that we would act on that. It would spur us to action. And God, that we would make a difference for eternity for you. That our friends and our neighbors would come to know you, our family, because God, we are praying, we are acknowledging that you have work that you want to do for us. We are acknowledging that you came and you gave us this work to do and that your Holy Spirit will do this through us. And we call upon you now, God, to do this in our church and do this in our lives. Grow and nurture, we pray, God, these seeds that you have planted in us. Don't allow them to be buried. Allow them to mature and grow incredible fruit for your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.